Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Romans chapter 4. I'm going to cover verses 1 through 12. The context is this. At the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul introduced himself and then he started talking about the Gentiles and he said they are without excuse because they have a law. They were without excuse because they look at the things of nature. They have natural revelation. They also have their conscience, which tells them what's right and what's wrong, and they're condemned under that law. And the Jews, they have a law, too, and that law condemns them. Why? Because the Jews aren't keeping that law, even though they think they're justified by having the law, but no, they're not keeping it. So they're under condemnation and wrath. And so Paul is now convinced everybody in the world, none is righteous. Everybody's a sinner, whether Jew or Gentile. So then he starts talking about the remedy. At the end of chapter 3, he starts talking about how can we be justified before God. And the answer to that is by faith in God, in Jesus' work on the cross, not by any law. And so the immediate context is justification by faith. And what Paul is going to do in the whole of chapter 4, we're not going to do the whole of chapter 4, just the first 12 verses, but the whole of chapter 4 is going to be about how Abraham was justified by faith. So let's start with Romans 4.1. What then can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? What then? Well, that then is referring back to the end of Romans 3, as I just mentioned. Let me give you a couple of scriptures from the end of Romans 3 to, give you, to show you what Paul is talking about. Romans 3.28. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. That's what he's talking about, justification of faith apart, apart from works of the law. And then two verses later at Romans 3.30, God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith, the Jews, and the uncircumcised through faith, the Gentiles. So it's circumcision by faith, whether you're Jew or Gentile. That's the context. So now what Paul does in Romans 4, again, he's mainly, and I, admit, I didn't mention this, but he's mainly aiming at the Jews who, who are very cocky and proud because they have the law and they think they're saved already, justified already. Paul then comes up with the number one uber-Jew example that he can use to show that was not justified by works, and that's Abraham. So he's working on the Jews here, and of course he's using the best example of a Jew who was not justified by works that he can think of is Abraham. He's going to mention David too, but Abraham especially. Abraham is the father of the Jews, and even he was justified by faith. So if the number one Jew in all the world was justified by faith, why shouldn't you Jews also be? Now, Abraham is the true example of a justified person. We read Paul writing in Galatians 3, verses 6 through 9, just as Abraham believed God, that means he had faith in God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. So there is justification by faith. Righteousness means justification. If you're righteous, that means you're justified. And if you believe, that means you have faith. So there's justification by faith in Galatians 3, 6. Verse 7 in Galatians 3, Then understand that those who have faith are Abraham's sons. Not law, but faith, not works, but faith, or Abraham's son, this Jewish guy, he is the father of those who have faith, not who do works. Now, the scripture saw in advance that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, justify by faith, not by works of the law. God would justify the Gentiles by faith, and that was foretold, that was the scripture, the Hebrew scripture said that in advance, that means in the Old Testament. And the Hebrew scriptures told the good news ahead of time, ahead of Jesus in the Old Testament. The good news ahead of time to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed with Abraham who had faith. So Abraham had faith. He was, I mean, Paul couldn't repeat it too many times, could he? Now let's look at James 2, 21 through 23. James says this, wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works and by works faith was perfected. 
Now in verse 22, you see that it was faith that got Abraham, that was active together, that got Abraham saved. Now James is trying to say that faith without works is dead, that once you have that saving faith, then works will follow. Faith is the fruit of our salvation, the fruit of our justification. It is not the root of our justification. So then we get to verse 23 in James 2. So the scripture was fulfilled that says... Abraham believed God. That means he had faith in God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Well, you know, even this verse where people always say that, see, James has proven justification by works. Even in that passage, in verse 23, it says, Abraham believed God. Not that he worked for God, but that he believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness, for his justification. So his justification came through belief, through faith. So very clearly, Abraham was a justified person through faith. Now, we do need to deal with this problem in James because it, it's turned out to be a big stumbling block. In fact, it was what Martin, was it Martin, yeah, Martin Luther decided that we need to get rid of the book of James. It's an epistle of straw because it has justification by works in it. Well, I'm surprised somebody as smart as Martin Luther got balled up on this. James uses justification in a different sense than Paul. When James says that Abraham, our father, was justified by works, he means this, he's using justified in the sense of vindicated demonstrated. Abraham, our father, demonstrated by his works that he was saved by faith. Abraham's works are a demonstration of faith that is already present. As John Gill puts it, he is justified before men. His his faith is, his justification is there. His works are accomplished because of a justification by faith that is already there in the heart of Abraham. As John Gill puts it, Paul speaks of works as the causes of justification. James of works as the effects and evidences of faith. So that's how James used it to justify. For example, justify yourself, son. You made an F on your algebra test. Give me some evidence that shows to show me that it was the teacher's fault and not yours because you didn't study. That just means to show me, to vindicate yourself. But Paul uses the sense forensically. It means to legally declare one righteous in the courtroom of God. So when Paul says you're not justified by works, that's what he means. It means you're not declared righteous before God by what you do. When James says you are justified by works, that means you are vindicated by the works. You are demonstrating that you have already been judicially justified in heaven. You are now demonstrating to your fellow believers on earth that you have been saved. There is no contradiction between the two, between Paul and James. To summarize it, James uses justified by works to mean justified before men evidentially, and Paul uses justified by faith to be justified before God forensically declared righteous before God legally. Now, Paul here in Romans 4.1 says that Abraham is our physical ancestor. That is katasarks, according to the flesh. What does he mean, according to the flesh? Well, it could be according to his genetic physical descent, according to John Gill. I think that's what it is. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says that Abraham is our ancestor, according to the, or the Jews' ancestor, according to the flesh, what that means, it's according to Abraham's natural efforts. He's our ancestor because he naturally tried to have a lot of kids and, then, and had a lot of Jewish descendants. He had a natural, a lot of nat- he, he exerted himself naturally to keep God's commands and to fulfill that covenant that, that he would be the father of many nations. Well, I don't believe that's true because that would contradict the fact that Abraham was not justified by works. That's saying that he is justified by works, all the works that he does. So, and Paul's trying to say no. Abraham didn't do that. He, he, he believed. He didn't work. Could be according to the flesh, according to circumcision. In other words, Abraham was circumcised, and, and we Jews are circumcised too. Therefore, he's our ancestor. 
That's Adam Clark's idea. I don't think so. I just think Gil's right. It just means Abraham is our ancestor, our Jewish ancestor, according to genetic physical descent. Now, notice Paul says our, he's, he's a Jew too. And so he's identifying himself with the Jewish Christians there in Rome that he's writing to. Although the majority of the church in Rome was Gentile, he's, 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 uh, he's really focusing on the Jews here. Now, Abraham is said to be our Jewish ancestor. The word Abraham means father of a multitude. So he, you know, he used to be called Abram, but then when he got the covenant promise that he was going to be the progenitor, he was going to have land, he was going to have offspring, he was going to be, and the offspring were going to be a blessings to the to the world, to the nations. He then got his name changed to Abraham, which means father of a multitude. Now, he was the natural father of the Jews, but he was originally a non-Jew from Ur, which is right down there on the Persian Gulf in Babylonia. He was an idolater. He was called from Ur to Haran, where they worshipped the moon god Sin, and he went from Haran into Shechem, into the Promised Land. And that's a famous story. So he was the first Jew, even though he was started out being a pagan. Now, in that famous covenant, Genesis 15, God promised Abraham three things, land, offspring, and blessing. The way I remember that is L-O-B, lob, land, offspring, and blessing. And, of course, that's been fulfilled ultimately in the church today. It was also fulfilled penultimately in Israel, in the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Now, what did Abraham find? It's, Romans 4.1 says, what then can we say that Abraham, our physical ancestor, has found? He's found something. What has he found? He found that he was justified by faith. His experience with God taught him that. He knew that he had been made right before God. And that's one thing. It's real easy to get a little bit objective, not objective, how can I say this, a little bit academic about justification by faith. We've got to realize that if you're studying justification by faith, you're going to experience it too internally. You're going to know that your sins have been forgiven because your conscience ain't going to condemn you anymore because you know that Jesus took away your sin. And Abraham knew that too. He knew that he'd been justified by faith, and he followed God faithfully until the day that he died. We now move to verse 2 of Romans 4. Paul continues, If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to brag about, but not before God. And of course, Paul is assuming that Abraham was not justified by works, so therefore he has nothing to brag about, not before God. And he might brag about before men, but he can't brag about God that he's saved. Now this boasting idea Ultimately, it is true about any self-righteous person that they are proud. I don't care if they act humble, they're proud. They're saying, I don't need God. I mean, there's a a lot of wonderful, civically righteous people I know today. We call them good people. They're good people. I want my daughter to marry one of these guys. But they're proud. Deep down inside, they say, I don't need God. I can be my good little self without God. And that is arrogance, folks. But Abraham knew he wasn't good enough to please God. He believed God. He didn't do something to make God love him. He just believed that God would make him righteous. So Abraham was not justified by works. Not in Paul's sense of forensically justified. And of course he was justified by works in the sense that he vindicated his faith in God by what he did. His whole story is, except for a few unfortunate weaknesses, his whole story was an example of, of following God. I mean, moving out of and taking your whole family and all your possessions and moving from your homeland to a strange land where you're a nobody amidst all the pagans? Yeah, that's some works, all right? So he justified his faith by his works, but that's in James's sense, a sense of vindication. But Paul is not using justified in James's sense. He's using justified in the sense of, in his sense, Paul's sense, which is justified by God 
forensically, legally, made righteous, declared righteous. We go to verse 3 of Romans 4. For what does the scripture say, Paul continues, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, this is actually stated in the Old Testament, Genesis Genesis 15, 6. That's in the chapter where the covenant was cut with Abraham. Abram believed the Lord. Abram was his old name, remember. Abram believed the Lord and he credited it to him and he, the Lord, credited it to him, to Abraham, as righteousness. Genesis 15, 6. And Paul quotes that several times. Here's three times. Romans 4, 9 in this same chapter, six verses later. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the circumcised? Let me say that again. Is this blessing only for the circumcised then? Or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Romans 4.22. Next audio. Therefore it was credited to him for righteousness. What was? His belief was credited to him. Galatians 3.6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. What was credited to him for righteousness? His belief in God. Now what does believe mean? Here's Thayer's lexicon's definition. To think to be true. Well, that's an objective sense of, of believe. I believe that 2 plus 2 equals 4. I believe it objectively is true. Thayer says that believe means to be persuaded of. I'm persuaded that that politician is somebody I should not vote for. So I'm persuaded of. But that's objective. But believe in the third sense, which is to place confidence in. That's a subjective kind of faith. And, of course, that's the kind of faith that Paul's talking about. There's the old example of the man who walks across the high wire, the tight rope, across the cable, across Niagara Falls, carrying a chair. And he asked somebody in the audience, do you believe I can do this, carrying somebody in this chair, walk across Niagara Falls? And John Doe says, yes, I believe it because I've seen you do other things similar in other cities. I believe it. That's the objective belief. He believes it. And then the tightrope walker says to John Doe, well, then would you like to sit in the chair and let me do it for you? Now, if John Doe gets in that chair, that means he subjectively believes the objective truth that that man can carry him across the wire. If he doesn't get in, then he doesn't believe it subjectively, even though he believes it objectively. Well, Paul is talking about subjective belief. He's talking about getting in the chair, believing God for everything, for your salvation. Now, this belief, this faith, is credited to Abraham. It's kind of like it's credited to his account. In fact, Thayer defines credited as to reckon, to count to compute, to calculate. So God gave credit to Abraham. It's like, well, God's looking at Abraham's books and says, hmm, I see a lot of debit, a lot of, a lot of debits over here on the sin account. And you know, all accounts have got to be balanced. We need some forgiveness for all this sin that you've done, Abraham. Well, I tell you what, I'll just give you some credit over here. Since you believe in me, I'll just, I'll just balance out that account. So all that sin is now even in the account and you have no debit account as far as sin is concerned that's kind of the idea behind it credited for righteousness what's righteousness that means justified it's just no way of saying you justified it means that you are in the state of being right with god paul continues in verses four and five of romans four now to the one who works pay is not considered as a gift but as something owed but to the one but to the one who does not work but believes on him, on God, who declares the ungodly to be righteous, his faith is credited for righteousness. Now, of course, when somebody pays you a salary for a job or a wage for a job done, that's obviously not a gift. We all know that. Well, a lot of people think that they can work for God. 
they can hire out and say, okay, God, I'm working for you. I'm, I'm, I'm evangelizing the lost. I'm a missionary. I give my money to the poor. I help little old ladies across the street. And you owe me something, God. Well, it, that type of attitude is absolutely verboten because God doesn't owe you anything. God doesn't owe any human being anything. He created us. We owe everything to him. He owes nothing to us. Righteousness is not like a paycheck. Paul says in verse 5, but the one who does not work, and of course that not work is referring to the one who does not work for salvation. It's not referring to Christians after they're saved, because obviously we have to do a lot of work after we're saved. In fact, what is another word for ministry is work. Church and the work is what we like to say. Yeah, we're supposed to work all right, but that's only after we're saved. We're not supposed to work in order to get saved. So that's what Paul's talking about here, to the one who does not work, but believes on him. Notice the contrast between work and belief or faith. Faith, on the one hand, means you don't work, and work, on the other hand, means you do work. But to the one who does not work but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous, and what's the definition of justification? To declare someone to be righteous. So that's so basically that's what Paul's talking about here. The one who does not work but believes on him, on God, who declares the ungodly to be righteous, or who justifies uh, ungodly people and, and makes them righteous when they weren't righteous before. But to this one who does not work, his faith is credited for righteousness. In other words, not his works are credited for righteousness, for his righteousness, but his faith is. He just believes. And what is he believing in? Faith always has an object. His belief is in the accomplished work of Christ on the cross, his blood sacrifice on the cross, substituting his life for our life because life's in the blood. So when he dies, he dies instead of us who deserve to die. Now, when Paul says, the one who does not work but believes on him who declares the ungodly to be righteous. That's true in a general sense, but he's more particularly referring to Abraham because Abraham was ungodly. He was a pagan down there in Ur near the Persian Gulf. This is a rabbit trail, but I was on a tour in somewhere, Italy, I think it was, and I met this farmer, former Air Force officer who was working in Air Force Intelligence, I think it was, and he was over there during the Iraq Iraqi war, the first war, the Kuwaiti war, the first Gulf war. And he said he ran into an archaeologist and he was down there at the Persian Gulf and at Ur where they had done excavations. And this archaeologist pointed out to a man there and said, yeah, we think that's Abraham's tomb. And I just ran chills down my spine. I said, do, you, do they really know where Abraham lived? I know they found some things with some archaeological artifacts with Abraham's name on it. I have read that somewhere. I'm not an archaeological expert, but at any rate, Abraham was a real person, folks, and he's our father, as we'll see in the next next audio. So Abraham's faith is credited for righteousness. This fulfills Habakkuk 2.4. Look, his ego is inflated. He is without integrity, but the righteous one will live by his faith. Notice in that famous verse in Habakkuk 2.4, there's a contrast between the righteous one and the person in the first part of the verse. The person in the first part of the verse has an inflated ego, but the righteous one, on the contrary, does not have an inflated ego. And the person in the first half of the verse is without integrity, but the righteous one who lives by faith has integrity. So if you want to be righteous, that means you need to have integrity with a non-inflated ego, and you get it by faith. We go now to verses 6, 7, and 8 in Romans 4. Paul continues, Likewise, David also speaks of the blessing of the man God credits righteousness to apart from works. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. Now, Paul has already used Abraham as the classic Jewish example of somebody who is not justified by his works, but who is justified apart from the law 
the works of the law, apart from the law, by his faith, that's Abraham. But now he's using somebody who in one sense is even a better example because David was under the law. He came after the Mosaic law and he was bound by its strictures and provisions. And yet he is also justified by faith, as Paul quotes one of David's Psalms, showing that. David was a Jewish hero. Abraham was the first Jew. David, of course, is the famous King David, the Jewish hero. Out of the mouth of two witnesses were facts confirmed in the Old Testament law. Two or three witnesses, as it says in Deuteronomy. He lived under the law and was still justified by faith. And that would answer anybody who might cavil about Abraham and say, well, yeah, but Abraham was saved by faith, but he wasn't under the law. But once the law came, we have to be under the law. We have to get saved uh, by being under the law. Nope, not David. Now, where is David? Where is where did David? What verse is Paul quoting to show that David believed that the, that there was a blessing because God credits righteousness apart from works? What psalm was he quoting? Well, that's Psalm 32, verses 1 through 2. This is what David says. How joyful is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How joyful is the man is the how joyful is the man the Lord does not charge with sin and who and in whose spirit is no deceit. Let's put these three words together. Forgiven, covered, never charged. Our sins are forgiven, our sins are covered, and our sins are never, and we're never charged with those sins. That's perfect definition of atonement, if you will. God's propitiation, God's wrath is turned away from us because our sins are covered and we are now reconciled with God, as we talked about in the last chapter. Well, David himself, in the Old Testament, under law, more or less says the same thing. How joyful are those whose lawless acts are forgiven and whose sins are covered. How joyful is the man the Lord will never charge with sin. And by the way, notice joyful. It's a wonderful thing to be forgiven for your sins because we all have a conscience. We might say, well, God's not God's not looking at me when I do this thing. I, oh, I just hate myself. I always try to do better every New Year's. I make a resolution. I break it January the 2nd. How joyful it is not to live under that burden of condemnation of the works of the law. Now, notice... I've been using the phrase works of the law together. Paul doesn't say works of the law here. He just says, David speaks of the blessing of the man God credits righteousness to apart from works, not works of the law, but just apart from works. But Paul equates works with law. He says apart from works in Romans 4, 6. But in Romans 3, 21, he says apart from the law. But now, Romans 3, 21, but now apart from the law, God's righteousness has been revealed attested by the law and the prophets, apart from the law. So apart from the law is synonymous with apart from works. And to make it even more clear, Romans 3.28, Paul says this, For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. He puts the two phrases together. So you can feel perfectly justified in saying, I'm saved apart from the law, I'm saved apart from works, or I'm saved apart from the works of the law. It all means the same thing. Now, being saved apart from works is what makes Protestant Christianity absolutely unique among all religions of the world. I got this idea originally from C.S. Lewis. I think it was the abolition of man. I think I read it years ago when I was in college, but he made the point. You can look at all religions of the world. They all have one thing in common, except for Christianity. All things, One thing they had in common is that everybody's saved by their works, what they do. Talk to a Jehovah's Witness. Talk to a Mormon. Talk to a cultist. Talk to a Muslim. Talk to a Hindu. Why do you think those Buddhists in China always go around with those joss sticks burning, burning those sticks before Buddha? Trying to be good. Why do they give all that money to the Buddhist priest? 
I, I saw a Buddhist priest in, where was that? In a Chinese town called Lushan out in Sichuan province where they had a huge Buddha, one of the biggest Buddhas in the world. It was right on, on, a, on a river and the river flowed by and it was real hard to get in the boat to, to, to stay there to look at it. It was so tall. We got right up under his foot. His foot was bigger than my house. Huge Buddha. And everybody was going to see that Buddha. And I went into the Buddhist temple. I don't know why I did because they all looked the same. But this one was interesting because it was crowded with people. And I saw the old Buddhist monk in the Saffron Road. And he had a pile of RMB. Chinese currency was high as, a, high as my house. He's just counting away. And of course, that's if you watch this Buddhist religion in China long enough like I have, it's all based on works. And all religions are that way. And I, and I might say Christ, Catholic Christianity is pretty much that way, too. How many times you say the rosary bead and all that kind of stuff? So, let me read you some quotes to talk about how the Mormons, the Jehovah's Witnesses, the Catholics all talk about works and see if that jives with what Paul talks about works. Here's a quote from the Watchtower. This is January 15, 1986, from uh, the publication by the Jehovah's Witnesses. Quote, people want to be saved, but how? Simply attending religious services. Salvation cannot be earned by attendance at, attendance at meetings or in any other way. It is free, a gift from God. Yet Jehovah God does require efforts on our part if we are to receive his gift of everlasting life. See, they, they took, with, took back with one hand what they gave with the other hand. They say, yeah, salvation's free. Yet it does require efforts on our part if we are to receive his gift of everlasting life. What are they? What efforts? For one, vigorous exertion in his service. In other words, service is not a joyful thing we do because we've been saved, because we love God and want to serve him. Oh, no, we've got to get his salvation by exerting ourselves in God's service. Here's a quote from the Mormons, the Articles of Faith, page 107 and 108. A most pernicious doctrine, that of justification by belief alone. Yet in spite of the plain word of God, dogmas of men have been promulgated to the effect that by faith alone may salvation be attained. Well, there's heresy, right? That directly contradicts what Paul says. And it's really funny how arrogant the Mormon statement is, yet in spite of the plain word of God. Well, I'm reading you the plain word of God in Romans, and it says exactly backwards what the Mormons say it means. Here's a quote from Roman Catholicism. This is a tract called Salvation According to Rome. It's probably a Protestant tract. Quote, a, per, a priest does not have to ask God to forgive your sins. The priest himself has the power to do so in Christ's name. The penitent must atone for them by performance of good works. Stress is placed on the fact that any sin not confessed is not forgiven. But even after a penitent has received pardon, a large but unknown amount of punishment remains to be suffered in purgatory. And that, my friends, is why I'm not a Roman Catholic. As much as I admire a lot of what they do, especially their pro-life stance, Oh, heck, I believed in, in, in God because of Roman Catholics, because of st magazines I used, political magazines I used to read back in college uh, that were mainly influenced by Roman Catholics. So I have a lot of high respect for Roman Catholics. But let's face it, with all this stuff, you can work people out of purgatory. That's works. And all this division and venial and cardinal sins and all that stuff is works. Well, what was the whole Reformation about? That's why Martin Luther and John Calvin and, and Zwingli and all the Reformers and John Knox, all of them broke away from the Catholic Church because they were obviously preaching salvation by works. And here's another quote from the Mormons, Article of Faith number 3. We believe that through the atonement of Christ, all mankind may be saved by obedience to the laws and ordinances of the gospel. You're saved by obedience to the laws. No, you're not. You're saved by faith. The obedience will flow therefrom. Here's a quote from the Unitarians. I left them out. Univer Unitarian Universalism. 
People are capable of infinite improvement. When we raise ourselves on a higher moral and spiritual plane through living the exalted precepts of our religion, we are achieving our own salvation. They don't kid around about it. They don't hint around about it like the Mormons and the Catholics do and the Jehovah's Witnesses. They just point out, point blank, say it. We are achieving our own salvation by what we do. This is another quote from the Mormons, Second Neph- this is from the Book of Mormon, Second Nephi 25, chapter 25, verse 23. It is by grace we are saved, after all we can do. Yeah, well, you can't do nothing, Mr. Mormon, nothing to get you saved. Now, let's look at some scriptures that show that forgiveness is apart from the law. When I say scriptures, I mean Old Testament scriptures, scriptures that the Jews that Paul was writing to should have known about. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, When I kept silent, my bones became brittle from my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy on me. My strength was drained as in the summer's heat. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not conceal my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you took away the guilt of my sin. So you see, you confess, I believe, I acknowledge my sin. Not not, not working, just I, I believe in you, Lord, I confess my sin to you. And then you took away the guilt. I didn't get rid of the guilt. I, the sinner, did not, in using my own efforts, get away, take away the guilt of my sin. But you took it away. Because only God can take away our sin. Let's look at Psalm 103, verse 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he, God, removed our transgressions from us. Who does the removing of our transgressions in that verse? God does it, not the sinner. Micah seven nineteen. He, God, will again have compassion on us. He, God, will vanquish our iniquities. You will cast our sins into the depths of the sea. You, God, will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. So who does the vanquishing of our iniquities? God, not us, not the sinner. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. Who cast our sins into the depths of the sea? The sinner, or does God do it? God does it. We turn now to Romans 4, verse 9. Paul continues, Is this blessing only for the circumcised then, or is it also for the uncircumcised? For we say, Faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Well, Paul speaks of this blessing. What blessing is he talking about? The blessing of righteousness which comes by faith apart from the law, which he just talked about in the previous verses 6, 7, and 8. So is this justification by faith only for the circumcised only for Jews? Again, remember, he's quoted, a whole, he's quoted two Old Testament examples, Abraham and David, as showing that people in the Old Testament were justified by faith, not by the law. And so then he says, okay, well now Jews, believing Jews, are circumcised or are, are, are justified by faith. But now, is this justification by faith also for the uncircumcised, for Gentiles? Well, of course, the answer to that is, Yes, it's for the uncircumcised too also. Paul's already directly stated that in the previous chapter, Romans 3.30. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith, that takes care of the Jews, they get their they get, they get their justification by faith, and there is one God who will justify the uncircumcised through faith, in Romans 3.30. God will justify the Gentiles through faith. So obviously the answer is, this is a rhetorical question, and the, and the obvious answer to it is, yes, God's going to give justification to the Gentiles, too. And again, this fits in with the theme that Paul is trying to knock the Jews off of their proud pedestal. They don't think that the Gentiles can be saved because they don't have the law. Oh, yes, they can be. They don't need the law to get saved. They need faith to get saved. He ends verse 9 by saying, for we say faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Faith, that's not law. Faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Faith, not works. 
Faith, not law. Faith, not works of the law, was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Notice how many times faith is mentioned in the four scriptures that I'm, I'm going to mention here. I'm going to read in just a minute. I want you to note, look out for the, listen for the word faith. Paul says in verse 9 of Romans 4 that faith was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Well, let's look at the scriptures where it says that. And remember now, belief is a, is a synonym for faith. So listen for belief or faith. Genesis 15:6. Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him his righteousness. There's one. Romans 4, 3. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God. There's two. And it was credited to him for righteousness. Romans 4, 20 through 22. He, Abraham, did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith. There's three. And gave glory to God. Because he was fully convinced that what he, God, had promised, he, God, was also able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. What was credited to him for righteousness? His faith. His faith is mentioned in verse 20 and verse 22. He says, it, this faith, was credited to Abraham for righteousness. Well, there's three mentions of faith uh, associated with being credited for righteousness. And then we go to Galatians 3, 6. Just as Abraham believed God, there's number four, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Abraham had his account posted. Faith, 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 faith. Oh, that balances out my his account that had sin, 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 sin in it. We go to verse 10 of Romans 4. In what way then was it credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. Now, first of all, what does it mean when it was credited? His faith. When was Abraham's faith credited to him to make him righteous? Did that happen when he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Well, when was he circumcised? He was circumcised in Genesis 17. Well, when did he have faith and join the covenant with God? That was in Genesis 15. Now, those events were about 14 or 15 years apart, according to the NIV study Bible, John Gill and Adam Clark. So that means that Abraham believed God in verses 15 and was justified and righteous, but then he, it took 14 or 15 years later before he was circumcised. So that means during those 14 or 15 years, he was righteous without having been circumcised. And if Abraham can go 14 or 15 years and be righteous without being circumcised, well, so can the Gentiles. Not only is circumcision not necessary for justification, neither is the Mosaic law. Now, this is not mentioned here in Romans, but Paul mentions it in Galatians 3.17. And I say this, the law, which came 430 years later, later than the covenant, does not revoke a covenant that was previously ratified by God and canceled the promise. So God's promise with Abraham in Genesis 15, 430 years before the law, that is still operative and in effect, and it has nothing to do with your righteousness. The law does not. It was Abraham's faith which was credited him to righteousness. That happened in Genesis 15, 14, and 15 years before circumcision, and 430 years before the law came at Mount Sinai. So it is faith that justifies Abraham, not circumcision, and not the Mosaic law. What could be clearer? We go to verse 11 in Romans 4. And he, that's Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. This was to make him the father of all who believe, but are not circumcised, so that righteousness may be credited to them also. He received the sign of circumcision. In other words, he received the sign which was circumcision. Why? As a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while still uncircumcised. In other words, in Genesis 15, when he went to the covenant and he agreed to go into that covenant with God, that's when he had faith, that's when he believed. And then, as a seal, 
an outward sign of that inward faith that he had in Genesis 15 as a, the, the outward sign of circumcision was given in Genesis 17, 14 or 15 years later. Now, in general, all covenants have signs. All covenants have signs which are seals. The Mosaic covenant had the Sabbath day as a sign. The Lord's Supper has eating the bread and the wine as a, as a sign of the, of the, of the new covenant. The, the, no, the, the Noahic covenant had the rainbow as a sign. There's an outward visible symbol. But we have to remember, and the Jews did, Jews did not remember this, that outward sign is just a sign. It's not the inward reality that the sign points to. The Jews got the sign and the reality mixed up. A sign is different from that to which it points. A sign is a symbol that points to a deeper reality or substance. A si- the sign announcing entrance to a city is not the same thing as the city itself. Just because I have a sign that says Columbia, South Carolina in my bedroom doesn't mean that I've got Columbia, South Carolina in my bedroom. Likewise, Paul is saying to the Jews, just because you have circumcision doesn't mean you have righteousness. Now, here's some scriptures illustrating this. I mentioned that circumcision came 14 or 15 years later after the, the covenant and where Paul had, uh, where Abraham had faith and it was reckoned to him as righteousness in Genesis 15, 14 or 15 years later in Genesis 17, verse 11, we read this. You must circumcise the flesh of your foreskin to serve as a sign of the covenant between me and you. Covenant's already been done. The circumcision is just a sign. So you don't rely on the sign. You rely on the reality the sign points to. Romans 2, 28 through 29. For a person is not a Jew who is one outwardly, in other words, who's got his foreskin cut, who's circumcised. That, do, that doesn't make a true Jew. And true circumcision is not something visible in the flesh. In other words, true circumcision is not something you could see uh, in somebody's cut foreskin. On the contrary, a person is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is of the heart, by the spirit, not the letter. That man's praise is not from men, but from God. Now, I don't have all the verses listed here, but in a previous audio, I listed out about 10 verses, or maybe 7, 8, or 9, or 10. A lot of verses that were in the Old Testament where God himself talks about circumcision of the heart. It meant something even in the Old Testament. He kept pointing them back to the inward reality, not to the sign. The Jews would point to the sign. That's like saying, oh, I go to church. I'm saved. No, you're not. You go to church because you're saved. And if you go to church for other reasons, you ain't saved. A seal is something as defined by fair is a token which confirms, proves, or authenticates. So Abraham's faith was authenticated by the circumcision, just like baptism is a seal and sign of faith in the New Testament. And there's a lot of people who say, I've been baptized, I'm saved. There's a lot of people in China, I had trouble with this over and over again. When did you get saved? Well, I got baptized on January the 3rd. Well, that's, I asked you when you got saved. Well, I got baptized on January the 3rd. I said, wait a minute. You didn't get saved when you got baptized. That baptism is a reflection of what happened to you earlier. When was the earlier? Now, Paul, in the middle of verse 11, says this was to make him Abraham the father of all who believe. What was to make him the father of all who believe? The sign of circumcision? Uh, No, because then Gentiles wouldn't have that sign, and so Abraham wouldn't be our father as a Gentile. That would completely contradict Paul's point that we don't need circumcision. So what did Paul mean when he said this was to make him father of all believe? This was the believing in faith, the righteousness that Abraham received by faith that's what makes abraham the father of us all and we're going to mention we're going to talk about that a lot in the end of romans 4 in our next audio father abraham's father of us all and paul ends verse 11 by saying righteousness may be credited to them that's the uncircumcised the gentiles also how is righteousness to be credited to gentiles by faith because abraham is 
is justified by faith, and he's the father of the Gentiles, and therefore the Gentiles are justified by faith. That's how we get salvation also, justification also, by faith. We go now to verse 12. And he, Abraham, became the father of the circumcised, the father of the, of the Jews. And, of course, that's the believing Jews. He became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. That's how I know it's believing Jews, because of the condition that Paul put on it in the relative pronoun clause. And he became the father of the circumcised, who are not only circumcised, but who also follow in the footsteps of the faith of our father Abraham. So Abraham is the father of faithful Jews, believing Jews, who have righteousness credited to their account. And that faith that Abraham had, he had while he was still uncircumcised, between Genesis 15 and Genesis 17, for that 14 and 15 years. Father Abraham, our father Abraham was credited with righteousness in that period, and so then he becomes the father of those Well, not only does he become the father of those who are uncircumcised, but he becomes the father of the circumcised because he became circumcised in Genesis 17 while he still believed. And so then he becomes the father of circumcised Jews who also believe. Now, this implies that Abraham is not the father of the circumcised who have no faith, which fits right along with Paul's theme here in the first four chapters is the Jews need to quit relying on the law and saying that they're justified by the law. Abraham is not their father because they don't have faith. Abraham had faith. But circumcised Jews who don't believe in Jesus don't have faith. Now that expression, Father Abraham, is interesting because a father has seed, right? He has descendants. And John Riesinger, who is the modern father, he's died now, but several decades ago he became the modern father of New Covenant theology. And since I'm a New Covenant theology person, I love his books. I've read almost all of them. He has a famous book called Abraham's Four Seeds, and he points out that When we say Father Abraham, it's a little bit ambiguous because you need to identify what are the seeds of Abraham. First of all, Abraham was the father of his natural seed. That would include all physical descendants of Abraham, all the physical Jews, and all the physical descendants of Ishmael, who were the Arabs. So he's the natural father of the Jews and the Arabs. And the Jews and the Arabs are his natural seed. That's seed number one. Seed number two, there's a special natural seed. That would be the descendants of Abraham, physical descendants of Abraham, who were Jews. That would exclude the Arabs. And then the word is used as the Abraham is the father of his spiritual seed. This refers to Abraham's spiritual descendants. And those people are Jews who believe, Arabs or Gentiles who believe, everybody who believes and has the faith of Abraham. And, of course, that's what Paul is talking about here in Romans 4 that we've just been talking about. And then, of course, there's a unique seed. Abraham's ultimate descendant is Jesus the Messiah. Jesus is Abraham's seed with a capital S. Okay, so when we see Father Abraham, we're talking about the father in faith. Abraham is our father in faith, and that's everybody, whether it's a Palestinian Arab or whether it's a Mongolian, an Australian, an American, whoever it is, anybody that's not not a Jew or, or who is a Jew, anybody who believes has Abraham for their father. All right, I'm finished with Romans 4, 1 through 12. In this audio, I'm going to sum it up with some applications. This is summarized by Steve Ackerson. I am justified by faith apart from works. Forgiveness is a gift, not a wage earned. Circumcision has nothing whatever to do with causing salvation. To be righteous by faith results in my sin being forgiven, covered, not taken into account. Abraham is my spiritual father. And folks, that's some straightforward, uncomplicated, uncomplicated, uncontroversial theology. Hope you enjoyed it. 
Hope you tune in for next time as we continue talking about Father Abraham starting in Romans 4.13 and going to the end of the chapter. See you next time.